I'm just going to ask you to turn now in your Bibles, or you'll see it up on the screen, to Galatians chapter 4. I'm just going to read two verses, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. And we read, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Just went a verse ahead there, but I just couldn't resist it. It's too good a verse to leave. Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that at the beginning of this new year, we come to a God who we, who we know holds time in his hands. The God who holds our lives and our world, the history of our world, in his perfect hands. Father, we want to thank you that we know also that as we make you the rock and the foundation of our lives, as we build our lives upon you, that you will never let us down, that you'll lead us through this life. It won't be easy always. At times it will be very challenging and demanding. But Father, we thank you because we know that you sent Jesus, that we know that you're with us, whatever life brings our way. And for that, we now bring you our praise and thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Now, I've got a story here, and it's one that I can definitely sympathise with, I can sympathise with this one, and it's about a, a Baptist preacher who began to get annoyed at an elderly gentleman who always fell asleep as he delivered his Sunday morning sermon. Actually, I want to say I can handle people who, who fall asleep. I want you to know that so you can relax out there. I know who you are, and you know who you are. So, but relax. But what did once more amuse me rather than irritate me was when someone once began to actually snore loudly during one of my sermons. The person concerned did have a number, I want to make this clear, of physical and mental limitations. But nevertheless, it was quite a surreal experience to be preaching away while loud snores filled the building. And at the same time, looking out on a congregation with deadpan, fixed expressions on their faces, trying to pretend that they couldn't hear it. That was fantastic. But this other Baptist minister, he decided that he had to deal with this elderly gentleman. And because the old man's grandson regularly attended church with him, so the preacher one day said to this young boy, if you keep your father awake, during the sermon, just give him a nudge if he's going to drop off. I'll give you a pound every single Sunday. For the following two weeks, sure enough, the old man listened attentively. But on the third week, lo and behold, he dropped off again. So at the close of the service, the pastor called this young boy over to him and said, Hey, listen, what about our agreement? I'll give you a pound to keep your grandfather awake during my sermon. I said the boy, but here's the problem. Grandpa caught on to that, and now he pays me a fiver not to disturb him. 
Now, there are many different features to that story. A grandfather who sounds like quite a character. A young man who seems to be showing all the signs of all the attributes to have a very successful career in the business world. But what maybe I think that story best illustrates is that we have, all of us at times, very different attitudes toward time. To, to when things should happen, to what should happen, to just when it is the appropriate time, the right time for something to happen. But what I want to look at now, using the few verses I read to you in Galatians, what I want to look at is that time of the first Christmas. At why it happened, when it happened, and at what it achieved, and at what it means, what it can mean for each one of us today. So let's look first then at God's timing. And what we're told here is that God's timing is perfect. That Jesus Christ came at just the right time. It says in verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Now just why this was the right time from from God's perspective, from that heavenly divine perspective, we can't be fully sure. Undoubtedly, there is a, a spiritual heavenly dimension to all this that to some extent is hidden from us as men and women. However, there are a number of factors that we can see at the human level that make it clear that God sovereignly overruled and dictated that he was at work in the world of men drawing things together to make this the perfect point in human history for Jesus Christ to come. There was no better time until this time for the saviour of the world to be born. And the arguments for this are, are well rehearsed and widely known. That is the fact that, that this was the time when the power of the Roman Empire had reached its peak. All of the then known world had by this time been conquered and subdued by Rome. And, and what this meant in practical terms was that, that Roman roads which crisscrossed the empire, that this made transport and communication, never mind from nation to nation, but from continent to continent, this made all of this possible in a way that it had never had before. And then there was the famous... Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the Roman laws, the Roman authority that ensured that not only was travel possible, but that it was also, by and large, safe. You could now sit out on a journey, you could carry or send a message or a letter knowing that safe travel was almost guaranteed. Also, by this time, there was a, a common language, a language that linked the empire. Now, that had been essential to enable trade and business and commerce to be linked right around the world. Although perhaps to us a little bit surprisingly, the language that was chosen was actually Greek. It wasn't the language of Rome, it wasn't Latin. No, because the long history of Greece with its culture and philosophy, plus the exploits of the most famous Greek of all, Alexander the Great, who previously had conquered much of the world, taking Greek language and culture with him. This made Greek the natural choice <coughs> excuse me, 
But put all of this together. Transport, safe travel, communication, plus a common language. All of this made the time imperfect for the message of the gospel, the message of salvation made available through faith in Christ. All this made the timing perfect for this message to be taken and shared around the world. But it wasn't only these kind of practical factors that, that made the timing perfect. No, there are also spiritual factors that we can see at work. We can't see the whole spiritual picture because that is known only to God. It's beyond our finite, limited human understanding. But we can, in a sense, we can see the signs. We can see the symptoms of these spiritual forces that are at work breaking into the world of men. <coughs> and that's seen in the growing hunger for God. A growing hunger for a real personal knowledge of God that was so much in evidence at the time just preceding the coming of Christ. You see, the old gods, the gods of Rome and Greece, they were beginning to lose their attraction. People were becoming more and more cynical about the old myths. And increasingly, they were seeing them as fairy stories or other ancient equivalent. And they were searching then for God. Searching then for a true knowledge of God. Searching for a God who could make a difference to their lives, for a God who could transform their lives in the here and now, and a God who could give them hope for the future. Hope of salvation, hope of heaven, hope for eternity. Now this kind of hunger for a, a personal, for a life-changing encounter with a living God, this search for a God of a different order to their gods of myths and legends, this is evidenced in all sorts of different ways in the pagan world just prior to the coming of Christ. In that there was a, a growth in, in new so-called mystery religions at this time. Religions that seemed to, to hold out the promise of a knowledge of God, of salvation, of heaven. But these two, you see, they were rooted the way into these. Was in all sorts of outlandish myths and strange initiation ceremonies, strange rites. And so like the, the ancient religions, people didn't really have complete confidence in these. Another way in which this spiritual hunger is seen, this, this hunger for a real knowledge of a life-changing God, this is also seen in a, a growth in interest in Judaism at this time. People were beginning to be attracted to Judaism because of its high moral standards. And they liked what they read of the God of the Jews, what they read of his holiness and of his love, and the way that this was then intended to touch and transform the lives of his people. They looked at the, the Old Testament, and they read it and liked what they saw in its teaching. They liked what they saw in its narrative. You see, they saw that this was of a, a different order to their own so-called sacred writings. They saw that this was rooted in history, that the miracles and wonders of the Old Testament, that these aren't just outlandish, random acts, but rather that they all had a purpose, that they all point to God's glory, and that they all have a part to play. They all fit into the salvation story of his people. 
So do you see, I hope you see, that there was no other point in world history up to this point that a message of salvation for all people could have travelled the world and taken root in the hearts of men and women in the way that the gospel of Christ did. So do you think all this was maybe just a coincidence? That all these different factors just happened to come together at this time, at the time of Christ, that it all happened by chance? I want to say, that's too big a coincidence for me. It would take too big a leap of faith for me to believe in that. Rather, I believe what we see here is God's timing. And that timing is perfect. What we also see at Christmas is God's initiative. For again, in verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. For you see, mankind, we maybe search after God. We maybe have something of a hunger for God, <clears throat> something of a, a desire for God. But there's no way that we can reach God, that we can enter into a relationship with God by our own initiative. We can't do it, no, because our sin, our choice to sin, the fact that we who are made to know God and to share in his moral perfection, the fact that we chose instead to rebel against God, to turn from his ways. This, this sin raises a barrier between us and a holy God. This barrier of our sin. And we can't deal with this ourselves. So we're separate from God because of our sin. Rightly judged and condemned because we've made the choice to sin. So what does God do? Because he is love. Because he loves us so much. Because of this, he takes the initiative and comes to us, comes to our world to clear the way and make it possible again for us to enter into relationship with him. God takes the initiative. As in Jesus Christ, God takes on human flesh. God becomes human as he is born of a woman. And he does indeed enter fully into our experience. He does identify totally with our human condition. Because he's not only born of a woman, he's born of a poor peasant woman, Mary. He knows what it's like then to stand amongst, to live amongst the deprived and the dispossessed and the powerless. I mean, think of a king doing that. It's, it's unimaginable. It's impossible to imagine. Or a king might do maybe a royal visit, but in no way would a king ever think of becoming one with those he was visiting. Why, in our own circumstances, if there's a royal visit to a town, who do the royalty usually mingle with? It's not the ordinary man or ordinary woman, is it? They might get a wave or a word in passing, but it's not them they spend time with. It's the important people. It's the town officials, the dignitaries that the king actually spends time with. And even then, I had a, a Christmas letter once from a friend who kind of fits into that bracket who's required to be uh, a part of the welcoming party whenever they get a, an important visitor to their town and and they talked in this letter they sent of 
having a photograph taken when Prince Charles visited their town. And in this photograph, he's shaking this person's hand. But at other time, his head's turned away and he's talking to somebody at the other side of the room. He's not really with him. Now you see, I'm sure our royal family do their best. And I'm sure that they really care. But they don't really identify with their people, do they? They don't get down to our level. They don't live amongst us. And really, I don't think we expect them to. We wouldn't expect royalty. Never mind expect a king or a queen to live among us and be like us. And yet, the Bible tells us that that is just what the king of kings did. Because he loved us so much. And Paul here, he takes this thought of, of Christ's identification with us. He takes it on a stage further. When he adds born of a woman and then goes on, born under the law. Now what he's getting at here is that Jesus living in a Jewish community like any other Jewish child, any Jewish man or woman, that he lived because of that under the authority of God's law. That he was subject to all the requirements of the law. But where every other man and every other woman or child failed, Jesus succeeded. For he lived a life of perfect, sinless obedience to the law of God. And it was that perfect life that on the cross he offered up as the sacrifice for our sin. There as a man, Jesus stood in our place and took the punishment of our sin. There as God, he offered up for us that perfection, that perfect life that only he was capable of. And this salvation, this salvation that began at Christmas, culminated at Calvary, this from first to last was God's initiative. We were not worthy of it. We didn't deserve it and certainly we couldn't demand it. This was all of God, all born of his great love for us. And here, Paul Beasley Murray, who's got lots of wonderful insights into this passage. Here he shares an illustration that I think highlights and clarifies a, a dimension of truth here that, that we're maybe sometimes a little bit fuzzy about. And it relates to an unusual painting that apparently hangs in an Italian church. And at first glance, as you first look at it, it seems like a, a fairly ordinary painting of the cross. But then as you look more closely, you see something a bit different. There's a vast, shadowy figure behind the figure of Christ hanging on the cross. So then the nail that goes through the hand of Jesus also goes through the hand of the Father. The spear that's thrust into the side of Jesus also goes through the Father's side. And what this reminds us of, what this aims to remind us of, is that Christ's coming with all that it entailed was the initiative of both the Father and the Son. That the Father in love sent the Son, 1 John 4 verse 10, 
This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But in addition, the son also in love so willingly came. Ephesians 5 verse 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And it wasn't only the son who suffered as he hung there on the cross. No, as the son hung on that cross, the father's heart also was broken. But it was them. They took the initiative. Father, son, and Holy Spirit. All of God. They knew what it would cost. They knew the pain and suffering that would have to be endured. But they were willing to pay that price for us because such is their love for us well we've looked covered God's timing we've looked at God's initiative let's finally look at God's purpose at God's purpose that began to be set in motion that began to unfold from that first Christmas and there's a twofold purpose that's focused in on here in, in these verses in Galatians I believe one's negative the other positive the negative is that Christ was sent to redeem us, to set us free from the law. Now, this is a common theme with Paul, the fact that Christ was the ransom paid to set us free. But usually, when Paul talks of freedom, he talks in terms of freedom from sin. That's Paul's usual kind of focus. And there's no doubt that that is the major benefit that Jesus brings. That he sets us free from sin. Free from its dominating power and free from its ultimate penalty. But here, it's freedom from the law. And this is another aspect of the freedom that Christ brings. You see, by the time Jesus came into our world... <laughs> the Jews had turned the law, the law that had been given by God to guide his people into lives of holiness and love. They had turned this into a narrow, a life-denying set of rules and regulations. Which people were taught they had to obey perfectly, and if they did that, they would win God's approval in this life, and then the prospect of heaven at life's end. But what Jesus thought, what he came to remind people of, is that salvation is always a gift of grace. It's a gift of God. It's always been that. <clears throat> it's a relationship that you enter into by faith. It's not a religion, not a code book, not a rule book. Now, of course, to set aside side by side with this, if when we know God then we will live lives that reflect his life. We will live lives that show his holiness and his love. We will live in obedience to the central moral and spiritual principles of his word. We'll do that in love because we want to, because our desire is to do that as a reflection of his love. However, I want to say to you, beware of this. Whenever a form of Christianity again becomes in the main about obedience to a narrow behavioural code. 
Whenever the little lifestyle groups of our group, the rules of our group and our culture become almost or even more important than the central truths of God's word, than, say, the Ten Commandments, than the moral call of God, the call to grace, the call to holiness, the call to love. Whenever that happens, and it's about rules and regulations, we have been deceived again into taking on the negative shackles of religion rather than living in the free, life-giving relationship with God that we're supposed to be living in. But that's the negative side of God's purpose in sending Jesus. He sent him to set us free from the law, free from religion. There is a positive side here as well. That is, he sent us, we're told, that we might receive the full rights of sons and daughters. That we might know then that we are adopted into his family. And what a thought that is. If you really think of it, so often we, we take it for granted. But think of it. Just try and take it in. Because this is what the Bible teaches. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we come to him and put our trust in him, God doesn't only make us one of his people now and for all eternity. Not just that, incredible that that is. No, he makes us one of his family. He welcomes into the family of heaven as his sons and daughters. Now, what a truth. What a truth. That we're not just friends, we're family. But you know, because of our background and maybe our Christian heritage, this often, I, I think, doesn't impact us and thrill us in the way that it should. But a while ago, I read a story about a, a Hindu convert to Christianity in India who was asked by a, a mission to translate some of their teaching material into the local language. Now, <clears throat> as part of this material, there was a, a manual with a series of questions and answers. And one of these questions asked what the supreme privilege of the Christian was. And the answer that was given was to be called children of God. This Indian translator, though, with his Hindu background and culture still there in his mind, he couldn't take this in. This is too much, he said. It's too much. Let me rather put it. They shall be permitted to kiss his feet. Interestingly, that's actually a, a pretty good definition of what worship should be for the Christian, another of our great privileges. But do you see, do you see here? That new Indian Christian was overwhelmed, couldn't take it in by the thought. To him it seemed too much, too good to be true, that God should make a man like him one of his children. I want to say to you, it is too good to be true. It is. But that doesn't change the fact that it is true. That this was God's purpose in sending Jesus and Jesus has done everything that needs to be done to make this ours. He's done everything to set us free from sin. Everything to set us free from religion. He's done everything to bring us into relationship with him 
He's done it all. All we are called to do is by faith to make this ours. That's God's call. So I want to ask, is today, as we stand now on the brink of a new year, is this God's time, God's day for you? Is he calling you? Is he speaking to you and calling you by faith to make this gift of new life yours? If he is, listen to his voice. Respond to him in faith. And make this year the defining moment, the turning point in your life. Let's come. Father, each one of our lives are held in your hands. And each one of us, just today, has to hear your call to us. You're saying to us that our life, we can have a new beginning, that we can have new hope, new power, a new perspective a new ability to live a different life. You're ready to come into our lives and you're ready to take us and transform us. Lord, help us today to hear your voice and respond. Help us today to to realize the incredible privilege that's ours if today we are Christians. Oh Lord, help us to come to the Jesus who's given everything for us to come and to give him now our lives in return. In Jesus' name we pray.